We're going to be studying in Joshua chapter 4 this morning as we've wrapped up 1 Corinthians before we head into our next sermon series and as we celebrate our 30th anniversary together as a church. Uh, Hopefully that's given you time to find Joshua chapter 4 in your Bibles, Uh, but if you're still looking, let me give you something to ponder while you're finding that text. Uh, Do you have any souvenirs in your house? Anyone like to collect souvenirs, little trinkets, maybe it's a knick-knack or a t-shirt, maybe it's a magnet on your fridge, or possibly it's a larger item, some sort of wall hanging or decoration that you put up in your house. For Jenna and me, it's coffee mugs. Every time we go on a trip or vacation of some sort, we try to pick up a coffee mug from where we've gone. Uh, It's a perfect reminder because it doesn't take up a whole lot of space in our house, and as uh, parents with young children, we're constantly in need of more coffee mugs in our home as well. We, we like them because they, they serve as a small but consistent reminder of where we've been, of what has occurred and what we want to remember. They, they spark memories that we don't want to forget. They give us an opportunity to share that memory then with our kids, as our kids will be like, well, what is that mug about, and what is that a picture of, and what does that look like? And I expect for many of you, the souvenirs you have in your own home function as much the same way. They spark your memory of events and things that have occurred over the course of your lifetime, of things that you don't want to forget and you don't want to lose sight of, because we as people so easily forget, do we not? We forget things in history, we forget things in our past, we forget all sorts of things, and sometimes a little thing like that will simply trigger a memory that we don't want to lose track of. But I find myself wondering, do you have any spiritual souvenirs in your life? That may seem like a strange question, so let me explain a little bit about what I mean there. Do you have any items, either physical in your house or mental that you've just logged away in your memory that serve to remind you of what God has done in your life in the past? Spiritual souvenirs that serve as small memorials to remind you of critical seasons where God showed his faithfulness to you. If you don't, let me submit to you that maybe that's something you should consider doing. Finding an item or mentally logging away the moments where God has been faithful to you in the past so you don't forget. Because here in our text this morning in Joshua chapter 4, God commands Israel to do just that. He commands Israel to build a memorial. He commands Israel to remember. He commands Israel to tell future generations of what God has done that they would know the awesome deeds of the Lord. Now, customarily, if you attend Faith Bible Church regularly, you know that this is where I would normally read through the text that we're going to be walking through this morning. But rather than doing that, what I want us to do is I want us to read through this story to give us a better feel for how it was written. So we're going to read through it as we walk through the message, and I want us to hear the story in much the same way the original hearers would have. So rather than reading the text here this morning, I just want to start us off with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, as we pause this morning to remember your faithfulness, I pray that we would have a sense of joy, Lord, that looking back would remind us of your faithfulness. Father, you have been so good to us as a church. You have been so good to me, to us individually, to call us out of the kingdom of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of your beloved son. We have so much to be thankful for. Not only that, but you chose to 
bring us together as a church. You chose to give us a place to worship you and others to walk alongside in that endeavor. And that is something to celebrate and something to be thankful for. So Lord, I pray that as we continue to worship by studying your word this morning, that you would encourage us, that you would turn our attention and our hearts toward you, that you would remind us of what you have done for us, what you have done in us, and what you intend to do through us. Father, use this time, use my words, use your word powerfully this morning for us as a church. In your name, amen. Now, many of you are probably asking yourself the question, why are we parachuting right into the middle of Joshua on this Sunday? Um, Again, if you're visiting, let me tell you, this is not our normal approach. Typically, at Faith Bible Church, what we do is we start in a book and we walk chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, and that's how we approach books in general. But this week, we wanted to take a moment and we wanted to do something a little bit differently because we wanted to slow down to celebrate our 30th anniversary as a church. So let me catch you up to speed a bit on what's going on in the book of Joshua. Joshua is a book about the Israelites' conquest of the promised land, about God's fulfillment in giving his people the land that he promised to give them when he told their forefathers generations ago. It's a book about God's faithfulness to his people. It's a book about obeying God despite the overwhelming odds. It's a book about fighting God's battles God's way. Lord willing, this fall we'll get the chance to go through Joshua in a little bit more time and tie up some of the loose ends that will probably be left after this morning's message. But this morning, as we come to Joshua 4, we pick up the story as the Israelites have just crossed over into enemy territory, as they come out on the other side of the Jordan River, and God commands them to do something a little bit strange. He doesn't command them to build a fortress. He doesn't command them to solidify their position. He doesn't command them to immediately go up and attack Jericho. He commands them to erect a monument. He commands them to erect memorial stones. And here in these first 18 verses of chapter 4, we see two purposes for these memorial stones given. And two reasons that we're pausing here this morning to build memorial stones as well. Reason number one, we build memorial stones to manifest God's faithfulness, to manifest God's faithfulness. Look at verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan. Now, that's an easy thing for us in 21st century America to just read over. Israel passed over the Jordan River. And while that may have been an impressive achievement in and of itself, we fail to see just how big of a deal that would have been to the Israelites. The entirety of the Old Testament up to this point has basically been anticipating this moment. This generation of Israelites had been waiting their entire lives for 40 years for this moment to happen. And finally, they're on the other side of the Jordan River looking back on the wilderness that they had wandered for 40 years. And so I want us to pause here just for a moment, and I want us to backtrack a bit, and I want us to see where God had been faithful to the Israelites over the last 40, 50 plus years. Because in order to understand what God tells them to do here, we have to feel the weight of how many promises God was fulfilling to his people. So let's review here just a moment. What had God done for his people up to this point? Now, we're going to be moving through a few different texts pretty quickly in our time together this morning, but I would encourage you to look those up and to follow along with me. First, God had delivered his people. Turn to Exodus 3 in your Bibles, just a few books to the left here. Genesis, Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament. Here in this text, we hear of God's promise 
The Israelites were wrestling with slavery in Egypt. They had been oppressed and they were under the thumb of the Egyptian rulers. And here God promises to deliver them. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Read this. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's a mouthful. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And you're probably familiar with this story, the story of the Exodus. God comes here in the burning bush to Moses and he says, I am going to deliver my people and I'm going to do it through you. And we get the ten plagues of Egypt and we get the people brought out of that land and God fulfills this promise to Moses and to the Israelites. God delivered his people as promised. What else had God done for his people so far? Well, after he has delivered them, he then constitutes them. He then creates them and makes them a people. That's the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. Turn to the right in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 20. Now, I can probably say with a fair amount of certainty that Leviticus is not many of your favorite books. So you may have read over this because this text is sandwiched right in between some laws and some of the texts that we struggle with as we read the Old Testament. But here we see God separating out his people from the other people and saying, I have a specific purpose for you. Look at Leviticus chapter 20, verses 22 through 26. God speaking to his people, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. God rescues this people, delivers them out of Egypt, and then he sets them apart and constitutes them as a nation for a specific purpose for him. But if you're familiar with the book of Numbers, you know that Numbers lays out the people's rebellion against God. That the people, after being delivered from Egypt, after being promised conquest in the new land, get to the promised land, they look in and they see that the enemy is too strong for them. And rather than trusting God's faithfulness, they turn tail and run. They said, we want to go back to Egypt. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 14. And as a result, God says, I'm not going to leave my promises behind, but I'm not going to fulfill them in this generation. And that generation of people has to wander around in the desert for 40 years until they've all died out and their children are ready to come into the land. 
But God has still not forgotten his promises. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses issues his final command, his final commissioning to this people, and he commissions them to this new task. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 13, or 31. I promise this is just a couple more texts here, okay? We've got to understand this as we go into this. Deuteronomy 31. Moses is issuing his final words to the people before they're to march into the promised land, and he makes a fascinating comment here in Deuteronomy 31, verses 1 through 8. We see how God appoints them to this task. He said, so Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go before you. He will destroy the nations before you, so that you shall dis- or to dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go out with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. These are Moses' final words to Joshua as he commissions him to this task. So the Israelites had been promised deliverance from Egypt, and God fulfilled that promise. They had been promised to be created as a people, and God had fulfilled that promise. They had been commissioned to the task of going into the land, and here in Joshua, God fulfills that promise. But then as they get closer and we get into the book of Joshua, we find out that God also consecrates them in chapter 3. He sets them apart and prepares them, and look at verse 5 of chapter 3. I love this verse, Joshua 3, verse 5, leading up to this text, right before they enter the Jordan River, we read, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. God sets them apart, he sets them up, he gives them a task to do, and then he tells them to consecrate themselves, to prepare themselves, for tomorrow God is going to do something amazing. And God then accompanies his people through the Jordan River. God accompanies his people through the Jordan River. We see that in the rest of chapter 3. The Lord said to Joshua, look at verse 7. Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, And when the soles of the feet of the priests bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. God promised to Joshua and told him to tell the people that when the priests entered the water, the water would cease. 
The water would stop flowing. God was going to do a miraculous thing, and he was going to accompany them and go before them into this land. Now, we need to recognize all of that because we need to understand that when Joshua comes to chapter 4 and he's writing of the people on the other side of the river, God had fulfilled all of these promises to Israel. He had promised to rescue them out of Egypt, and he had done it. He had promised to create a people out of them, and he had done it. He had promised to go with them and to consecrate them for the task, and he had done it. God had come through on so many of his promises, and the people needed to be reminded of that because he was sending them into the land with a task. And what does he command them to do? As they stand on the other side of the Jordan and as they look back on the wilderness that they had spent their entire lives in, what does God command the people to do? Look at verse 2. He says this. Take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. And take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. Try to put yourself in the feet of these Israelites. They had spent their entire lives being told of a land that they were supposed to move into and possess, but they had never seen it. They had been told their entire lives with these incredible promises of God, and they had spent their entire lives being sustained by the manna and the preservation of God, and they were finally standing on the other side of the river. And God says, tell some of them to go back down into the river and to pick up some of those stones to pick up those smooth river stones and to bring them up onto the shore. And when your children see these stones, I want you to tell them that is what God did for you. That is what God has done for you. And he specifies the purpose here at the end of verse 7, and this is so critical for us to recognize. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Today we pause to build some memorial stones because memorial stones manifest God's faithfulness. They make God's past faithfulness tangible. They're things we can see and they're things we can refer to and they're things we can be reminded of to say God has been faithful to us in the past. God showed up at this moment and I remember it. Kind of like writing your name in concrete. Did anybody ever do that as a kid? There was some freshly poured concrete, right? And I do hope that it was concrete that you helped pour and it wasn't just some random thing you came across, right? I know there's some of you out there that raise your hands that I'm a little worried about that with. But for most of us, if you're there and you get the chance, what do you do? You write your name in the concrete and maybe you put a date and you say, I was here. And as that concrete hardens, people for generations can look back at that concrete and they can say, well, look, Brad was here. They may have no idea who you are, but they know he was here. These memorial stones function that same way. 
for the people of Israel was a moment for them to look back, and when they came across these stones, their fathers were to tell their children, God was here. This is when God showed up. This is when God made his presence manifest for us. And you can almost envision the scene, right? They're walking along, they come up to the stones, and the child's going, well, what's with that pile of stones, Dad? And he says, that's when God brought us across the Jordan River. You see how those stones are all smooth from being washed over for years by the water? You see how those stones are these big boulders that were sitting at the bottom of the Jordan River that nobody could have gone in and gotten except God dried up the land? And so we picked them up and we brought them up and we put them on the shore and we said, that was when God showed up for us in a mighty way. They manifest God's faithfulness, not to make it greater, but to remind us of the fact that he is great and awesome and does amazing things. And God has been faithful to us too as a church. Has he not? Most of us weren't here 30 years ago when this church was first founded. But if you listen to the stories of those who were here, I am just overwhelmed by so many opportunities for failure. So many things that if God had not orchestrated and lined things up, this church would not be here today. So many moments and so many just divine appointments and happenstance, right? Coincidentally, this just happened. Where God's hand is undeniable that he orchestrated it. So many opportunities for deviation from the mission and the cause that we're called to pursue, the cause that we're called to achieve as a church. And so many stories of God's faithfulness. How he showed up in a moment to his glory and we said only God could have done that. Only God could have made that happen. So many stories that bear God's divine fingerprint as he guided and directed and moved the church from one place to another and prepared people for different seasons in the church. So many times when God came through for us. And I hope that you have some of those moments in your personal life, in your family as well. Times when you can look back to where you can say, God showed himself faithful here. And we need to remember that. We need to celebrate that. Today, we manifest God's faithfulness. We say, God, you have been faithful to this church for 30 years. And we're thankful for that. And we praise you for that. And you are the only one that deserves the credit for that. But that's not the only reason for these memorial stones in Joshua chapter 4. In addition to building memorial stones to manifest God's faithfulness, God also tells them to build memorial stones to magnify his might. To magnify his might. Look at this. Look at verses 8 through 11. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they had lodged, and they laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste, and when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. These stones that they brought up out of the Jordan were also to magnify God's might, to remind the people of God's power. But 
understanding and seeing God's might required them obeying. It required them doing just what Joshua, just what God, just what Moses had told them to do here in verse 8. The people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. And Joshua only commanded them because that's what God commanded him to do. And then I love this section. This is really an intriguing section in verse 8 and 9. It appears that two monuments get built. The first monument is on land, and the second monument is down in the Jordan River. This first monument on land, we learn later, gets built in Gilgal. We'll come to that in just a moment. But it's fascinating because they take these river rocks up out of the Jordan River, and they place them up on the land where the Israelites were. And it's this tangible reminder that those came out of the river because God did an amazing work. And it's also as if God is planting a flag for the Israelites on the other side of the Jordan River saying, God has already given you this land. He has promised it. It's as if it's already done. It indicates Israel's position as they stand across the Jordan River looking back on the wilderness and they say, this is the land God has promised to give us. He has been faithful time and time and time and time again, and I can trust that he will be faithful today. But there's also this second monument that we see in verse 9. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now, there's some debate among commentators on exactly what's going on, because this is the only place that it's referred to, but it seems like there's two monuments, one built up on the land out of river rocks, and one built down in the Jordan out of rocks from the land. It's almost as if God is indicating Israel's position across the land and reminding them of God's position in the river holding back the tide. See, this was all achieved by God. This wasn't anything that you did. This wasn't anything that you achieved. You didn't come up with this masterful strategy to ford the river and get across so you were in the right place. God went before you into the river, and God held back the river for you. So they erect this monument on the other side, and they erect this monument in the river, and the timing of God is perfect here. I mean, imagine being those 12 people, those 12 men that were supposed to go pick up the stones, right? We read here, the people passed over in haste. Well, I would have too, right? You can see the river water building up. Like, I'm going to get across the river. And then God says, Joshua, tell 12 of them to go back into the river. Just imagine being that guy. Like, hold on a second. 2.5 million people finally made it through the river, and the water didn't crush, crush them. And now I'm supposed to go back down into the river? Yeah. Go back down into the river, and as long as the ark is in the river, God won't let that happen. So they climb down back into the river, they pick up the rocks, and they walk back out of the river, we're going to see here in a moment that the water comes crashing down the moment the ark steps out of the river. God's timing is perfect here. We don't want to move ahead of God and we don't want to lag behind God. But God's timing is perfect here. But that means obeying in God's timing. We experience the blessing and the might of God when we obey in God's timing. We also must move in God's might. Look at verses 12 through 18. This is what I was talking about. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, passed over, armed before the people of Israel. And Moses told them, about 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle, before the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up out of the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. It's a great testament to God's faithfulness. The minute the feet of the men carrying the Ark of the Covenant touch the water, the waters are held up. And the minute the feet of those men exit the river, the waters come crashing back through. And what we have to recognize is that for these people, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence among his people. The Ark was the place where Moses met with God, the the place where sacrifice were offered, where the tabernacle was filled with God's glory. The ark was, if you read the book of Numbers, the center of the camp, and they were arrayed all around this camp, indicating God as their motivation, their their source of power, their source of strength, their leader, if you will. And the minute the ark touches the waters of the Jordan, the river stops flowing. And the minute the ark steps out of the river, the river comes crashing back down through The ark entering the river first, indicating God's initiation to go before his people. The ark staying in the river and standing there while two and a half million people walk through on dry land, indicating God's preserving power to protect his people. And then the ark coming up behind the people, indicating God's protection as their source of strength and hope. Moving in God's might means moving in God's timing. Moving according to God's speed and God's timetable. The other thing we see here that I think is worth noting is moving in God's might means recognizing God's power. Standing in that Jordan River with the water waiting to come crashing down would have been an act of faith. One step at a time. Because if God hadn't come through with each sequential step, they would have been washed away. God's might means recognizing God's power. Second point, memorial stones magnify God's might. We erect memorial stones, these reminders, these souvenirs of God's faithfulness to magnify God's might. Not to make his might bigger. God's might is never smaller. His power is never reduced. But our perspective on it is often too small. We forget and we minimize God's power and who he is. And as you look at Old Test- or miracles throughout the Bible, but especially the Old Testament, miracles function much like a magnifying glass. Or maybe more appropriate would be a, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for now? Right off the top. Not a telescope, a really close telescope. Somebody help me. Thank you. Exactly. Okay? They function like that. Okay? In much the same way that prior to being able to actually see the atom, The power of nuclear fission was present in those atomic molecules. It wasn't until the people all of a sudden could see it that we recognize how much power is there. The power had always been there. The nuclear power to to set off an atomic bomb had always been present in the atomic molecules, but all of a sudden we have the technology to see it. That's exactly the way miracles function in the Bible. God's power is never diminished. God's power is never lessened. No matter how much God does, his power is never lacking. But we don't see it. We don't see it because we forget God has been faithful and we forget God's power and God's might. 
And much like for the Israels, God's power has sustained us as a church too. Over the course of the last 30 years, the history of our church is undeniably God's sustaining power to us. Which means we have to recognize and acknowledge that this is his church. This church doesn't belong to any of us. This church doesn't belong to anybody that came before. It won't belong to anybody that comes after because as long as we are faithful, it is God's church. It is in his power that we will be sustained. Lord willing, 30 years from now, another generation of believers will be sitting here celebrating God's power and God's might to them. It's Christ's church, which means it's appropriate at moments like this to pause and to thank him for what he is doing. To give him the credit because he's the only one that deserves it. To celebrate and to praise and to look, to set up memorial stones like this and say, God, you have been so good to us. Your power has been on display time and time and time again in our lives. Which means we should pause and worship. If God's faithfulness and God's might doesn't produce worship in your heart, I don't know what will. I can only imagine the celebration that would have taken place for the Israelites on the other side of that Jordan that night. Worshiping God for what he had done. Celebrating his power and his faithfulness. Because the last time the waters were parted, the waves came crashing down and obliterated the most powerful nation known to man. And this time they walked through without a scratch. Thank God you truly deserve to be worshipped. Today we pause to celebrate God's might. To worship him and praise him for what he deserves. And it's on that note that I want us to pause here for just a moment. Because it would be very easy for us to simply move on from that reality. To intellectually say, God deserves our praise. He deserves our worship. But instead, I want us to actually pause. I want us to actually take a moment, and I want us to apply what we see here. I want us to hear of God's faithfulness to this church and sing of God's sovereign power for us. So far in Joshua 4, we've seen that God told the Israelites to erect these monument stones to manifest his faithfulness and to magnify his might. Then we get these last few verses here at the end of the story. And we see one final reason that we build memorial stones. We build memorial stones to motivate God's people. Look at verse 19 through 24. He notes this key event in the life of Israel. Read 19 to 20. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. Now, there's two things I want to note real briefly about this, sec this section of Scripture. First is the when, and second is the where of this story. You probably read right over the top of it when we read, and on the 10th day of the first month. We don't take a lot of stock of those things. We tend to not mark our calendars in quite the same way, but what's worth noting about this is this is in extremely close proximity to the Passover, to the celebration that the people would have celebrated year after year after year after year in the wilderness of God's deliverance of them from Egypt, anticipating God fulfilling his promise of moving them into the promised land. And you can read in Exodus chapter 12, he'll, he reset their calendar and said, when you engage in this Exodus, this is going to be your first month and then here we read, on the 10th day of the first month. So there's a very good chance one of the first things the Israelites would have been doing is celebrating the 
Passover, testifying to God's faithfulness as they entered this new land on the other side of the Jordan River. But in addition to when this takes place, I want to also know where it takes place, at Gilgal. Now again, this is not one of those things that tends to stand out to us. We're unfamiliar with biblical places as a general rule, but if you read the rest of the book of Joshua, what you learn is that Gilgal becomes the base of operations for the Israel's conquest of the land. And they move out from Gilgal, and they conquer the northern part of the land, and they move out from Gilgal, and they conquer the southern part of the land, and they find themselves repeatedly turning or returning back to Gilgal. Now put yourself in the feet of that conquering army. Having gone out on a battle, sustained by God's power, remembering God's faithfulness, having achieved victory, they walk back to Gilgal, and what do they see? Memorial stones. Every time they return from a victorious battle with the enemy, they walk back to Gilgal and they see a monument to God's faithfulness. And every time they are reminded, this is the God who brought us out of the desert. This is the God who brought us through the Jordan River. This is the God who will sustain us moment by moment as we conquer this land that he's called us to. And this should be our desire as well for this 30th celebration as a church to look back at those monument stones, to look back at God's faithfulness, and to say the same God who was faithful then is still faithful to us today. The same God who rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, the same God who sustained them for 40 years in the desert, the same God who parted the Jordan River, the same God who destroyed the city of Jericho is the same God that enabled the founding of Faith Bible Church, and it's the same God who will sustain us into the future. But in addition to this key event, I also think there's a fascinating command here that we see in verses 21 through 23. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you should let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord, your God, dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord, your God, did to the Red Sea when he dried up, or which he dried up for us, until we passed over. This is the who and the what of the text. It's fascinating that he envisions this interaction in a future day when children will come to their fathers and they will ask, what's with these stones? He anticipates children asking, what's going on here? What's taking place? Why do we do things this way? Let me just encourage you, if you're a kid sitting here this morning, this is exactly the sort of thing you should be doing. If we do something here as a church, and you're like, I'm not really sure why that's taking place. Go ask your parents. And parents, if you're not really sure what the answer is, come and find us. We'll try at least to answer the question. But I love this interaction of one generation saying to the next, that's what God did. That's what God did, and that's what you need to remember. To tell the stories of God's faithfulness as Israel passed over the Jordan on dry land, as he did for the previous generation in the Red Sea, this is your story too. To tell your children the very reason you stand on this soil possessed by the Israelites is because God faithfully enabled it all. He made all of this happen. And that's our charge as well. To from generation to generation remind each other of God's faithfulness. To say, this is how God was faithful in my life. And you can trust that he will be faithful in your life too. 
when younger people and our children look to us and they say, how do we know that God's going to fulfill his promises? We look back and we say, he has never broken a promise to me, ever. Then lastly, and most chiefly, is verse 24. What is the purpose of all of this? Why are we pausing to do this? Verse 24. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The whole reason for this memorial stone, the whole reason for this enterprise is God's glory. The reason for Israel's faithfulness, the reason for our faithfulness as a church is God's glory. And he speaks to two audiences here that I think are worth us addressing. First, that the earth, or that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. He speaks first to the unbeliever, and then he speaks to God's people. He said, one of the chief reasons that we erect these monuments to God's faithfulness is because the world needs to know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. This is our task as a church. This is our driving force, that God would be worshipped and glorified everywhere on the planet. This is what motivates every day, every involvement in the church, is to see God's glory over the whole face of the earth. Because people don't yet know God. They don't yet know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And we are to represent that to a lost and dying world. But in addition to that, he turns the focus back on the people of God. And he says that you may fear the Lord your God forever. God has done this for you and he's causing you to remember and he's causing you to worship that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Because we are a forgetful people. Because we forget what God has done for us in the past. And we forget God's power and we forget God's faithfulness. And we forget what he's promised to do. This should be our motivating force as well. Our motivating force for erecting these sort of monuments, these sort of memorial stones in our life should be to propel us forward into the mission that God has given us. These stones were given to motivate God's people. They're to function much like the banners that hang in stadiums and on basketball courts. You know what I'm talking about? When you enter a stadium and they have championships and this year and this year and this year and this year, and it's been too many years for the Huskers for me to mention those, but you know what I'm saying. The idea isn't to just live in the past. To say, well, that was exciting back then. The idea is to say, if we did it once, we can do it again. These stones were to motivate God's people to give them a dedication to the mission that stood before them. And God's memorial stones should motivate us too. They should be launch points for us to pursue this mission of seeing God's name being great throughout the world and growing in our fear of the Lord in our own hearts as well. Our desire should be to see God's name taken and praised throughout the world by every person that has breath. Are you motivated by that force? Is that the driving force? As you remember God's faithfulness and as you worship God for what he has done in his power, are you motivated to see him glorified by somebody that doesn't yet know him? Is that what drives you? And are you growing in your fear of the Lord in your own walk with Christ as well? 
Are you growing in your passion and your love for Christ? Are you growing in your awareness of God's power and God's faithfulness to you? Is that an ever-increasing thing in your life? No matter the circumstances, no matter the odds that you face, are you overwhelmed by what God has done and what he can do in the future? Today we pursue that mission together. We put a memorial stone, we mark a moment in our church's history, a moment in our lives when God was faithful to remind ourselves that he will be faithful again in the future. This is what today is all about. This is why we're pausing before we move into the next sermon series. Memorial stones are to manifest God's faithfulness as a reminder to us to look back and say, God has been faithful to us. They are to magnify God's might, inspire worship in his people as we say, only God could have done this. And they are to motivate God's people to pursue the mission of seeing people from every tribe and tongue praising God, of going into all the world to preach the gospel, to baptize them and to teach them to obey everything I've commanded because God is with us. Christ has promised to be with us in that mission. And as we head into this second hour after the service, I would encourage you to do just that. Whoever you end up sitting at the table with, sharing a cup of coffee with or a bagel with, share a story of God's faithfulness to you. A way he's been faithful to you personally, a way he's been faithful to your family, a way he's been faithful to this church. And pause to remember, to worship, and to pursue the mission together here as a church. As we take some time there, I would encourage you to be thinking about what stories God or you could share of God's faithfulness. So with that in mind, let me attempt to be the first. Let me share my first memory of Faith Bible Church from 10 years ago. Many of you may not know that Jenna and I actually didn't come to Faith Bible Church to be, become a staff member. We, we started attending Faith Bible Church about 10 years ago um, as, a, as just a lay person just wanting to find a church. And we had looked all over Lincoln, looking for different churches. We had switched churches because we had moved, and it wasn't very practical to go to a church that was so far away from our home. And so we tried a few different churches, very similar to Mike's situation. We had tested out a few different churches, and finally we got an invite to come down to Faith Bible Church. And it's interesting because we actually got an invite to Heritage Bible up, 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 up on the north side of town, and we tried to find Heritage Bible. We couldn't find the church. I've told Dustin this before, like, there's a very good chance we would have been at Heritage Bible if we had been able to find Heritage Bible Church, because we tried that before we came to faith. But we came down to faith, and we sat in the service, and we walked in before there was that back wall there. So it was December, and we walked in late, and so the breeze came, and everybody turned around and stared at us, because it was cold. But we walked in, and we hid in the back so that nobody would notice us, and we enjoyed the preaching. I think Tom was preaching on spiritual gifts, and we enjoyed the worship and Troy leading. And the people were extremely welcoming. And I remember our conversation. We walked out and we were driving back up 84th Street to our apartment. We said the preaching was great and the worship was great and the people were really friendly. And then I turned to Jenna and I said, but those chairs, they're just the worst. Thankfully, God was able to overcome my own creature comforts in my own life. And and we started attending this church And I shared that humorously, and that may not seem like an important story to many of you, but the fact of the matter is that was a moment that God began to change the entire trajectory of Jenna and my lives. As we began attending Faith Bible Church and ended up coming on staff, and the entire future that I envisioned 10 years ago for our life and for my life changed when we attended here for the first time at Faith Bible Church. And God's hand on that moment 
was so real to me. As I said, only God. Only God could make us wander around for 30 minutes trying to find Heritage Bible and not being able to find it. Only God could give us that random invite at a park somewhere. Only God could line things up the way he wanted things to be. Because he's faithful. And if he has done it before, he can do it again. Verse 24. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Amen?